As you grab a seat, uh, you can turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 1 and 2. Um, I know we're, we're, we're cruising towards Easter and today is Palm Sunday, um, but we're also, we're, we're, we're trucking in, uh, First Timothy this week. Uh, next week we'll take a break for Easter. Uh, we'll have a good Friday service that you can, uh, look forward to as well. Uh, and so, uh, not, uh, I, I, Sometimes I say, you know, every every Sunday really for us is is in reality is Easter Sunday because we live in response to a risen Savior all the time. Like that's not just a one time a year thing where it's like, oh, we should probably be reminded that Jesus uh, rose from the grave. This is an every day, uh, every time we gather reminder for us. Um, and yet, as we sang, it just uh, I saw a rabbit, so I'm going to chase it for a minute. Uh, as we sang, we, we just sang about the holy God of the universe who created everything. Um, and, and one of the, the, the great reminders as we gather for worship, as we gather to, to hear God's word, is that uh, that holy God who created everything uh, and who is far and away holy and separate and perfect, that same God determined that you and I and the people that he had made in his image are worth sending his eternal son to death for. So that we might not just be like awestruck at, wow, there's a holy God out there somewhere, but that we might walk with him and know him all the time. That's What an incredible thing that we get to. I mean, that, that, that's not just an Easter Sunday thing. That's this is the, the essence of why we believe what we believe. Like the people created in God's image chose to do our own thing and run away from a holy God, and yet that holy God made a way for us to be right with him. Uh, and so out of the overflow of that is, is where we find as we jump back into 1 Timothy chapter 6, um, as we've been walking through this letter from Paul to Timothy, uh, the essence of like the major theme that Paul has been hitting on over and over again is that the church is to hold on to the truth of who God is, and then that truth is to change everything about them so that the goodness and the glory of Jesus is reflected everywhere they go. Right? I mean, like that, that's kind of the First Timothy in, in Pastor Zane's words. Um, the gospel changes everything about us. We are to hold tightly to it, and then we are to radiate the glory of who God is in and through us. And so when we come into 1 Timothy chapter 6, um, Paul is giving what seems to be just a very practical uh, everyday advice or commands to Timothy to give to the church in Ephesus, but it's flowing out of everything that he has said in the first five chapters. Uh, and, and just by way of reminder, I would say when Paul wrote this letter, he did not write little numbers next to each sentence, and he didn't write big numbers every so often in the middle of the letter. He wrote a letter, right? And now we go, hey, you should turn to this big number and this little number, and that's where we're at. Uh, so Timothy would have taken this all as one letter, read it, and then passed it on to the church. And so in chapter 1, Paul lays out, he says it's a trustworthy statement that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, right? And because Jesus came into the world to save sinners, in chapter 2 he says, therefore we should be praying and offering supplications and intercessions for all people so that they might come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
And then in chapter 3, because that is the, the overarching goal of what God is doing through his people is to make his way known and to bring people into his family, then chapter 3 is how should the, the, the church body, the church family, how should it be led and how should it be organized and how should, it, how should the tone be set for this gospel-radiating people to take place in, in the people that lead it. And then in chapters 4 and 5, we got into this, uh, this personal call for Timothy to cling to God's truth and to grow in it and to grow in the service of God. And then in chapter 5, it was a lot of practical instructions for how we as the body ought to relate to one another. How do we care for one another? How do we esteem one another? How do we, how do we show one another the love of Jesus in a way that reflects the glory of who God is? All right, and then in chapter 6, as we walk into this, uh, we, we come into kind of an odd, for us, I would say it's an odd situation because it is not a situation that we necessarily see in the 21st century in Libby, Montana. However, there are some very near things that we would identify with and go, this, this directly carries over into a, like a, a cousin of verses 1 and 2. Uh, and and I'll I'll lead us into that. You go. I, I don't even know what you just said. That was goofy. First Timothy chapter six verses one and two, and it's going to make probably sense by the seventh word in the sentence. It says, "Let all who are under a yoke as bond servants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled." Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Now, just by show of hands, how many of you know a bond servant? You know one? You're a bail bonds person. Oh, sorry. I was like, wow, we got one. Wow, I, you just threw me. I did not expect that, Bonnie. So a bond servant is not usually, that's not a term that, that you and I probably are real familiar with. Um, the, the word really could be, we could define it in three different ways. One, maybe the harshest way we could define it is uh, the word comes from, uh, it, it means slave, servant or bond servant it kind of like a catch-all term for three groups of potent people that are potentially in uh in servitude now i say that that's not real familiar to us in libya because most of us probably don't go oh yeah like my neighbor has got seven servants or seven slaves like hopefully not right okay just checking bonnie's hand stayed down that <laughs> so it's like making sure so in ancient rome Depending on, like, and you can, you can depend on, you can go in, in Wikipedia or Google it however you want. Depending on your source, you'll get this huge swath of ideas. But anywhere between 20% and 50% of the people who lived in the Roman Empire were in this category. So one, it's anywhere between 1 and 2 to 1 and 5, depending on who you, who you take, was enslaved or in servitude to somebody else. So when Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, let all who are under a yoke as bondservant, the odds are is he is hitting a decent population of the church at Ephesus. Because even in ancient Rome, like if you were, if you were a doctor or a carpenter or something like that, you could still, like you could still be owned by somebody else. And so we run 
face first into a really uncomfortable subject, first of all, don't we? Like, oh. Because before we even get into this, one of the things that we would love for Paul to say in verse 1 is, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants rebel against the institution of slavery. Wouldn't we? Because we're like, we know about this institution and it's not a good thing. Uh, we just took, as part of the, the high school mission team, and, and the, that's gonna, we're going to do a report this evening, but we took our high schoolers, we took the team out to, in West Africa, Island. It's this little uh, island that sits off of the coast of Africa, and we went to a house that was a part of the slave trade. And, like, and you hear about the history of people going and capturing people from this tribe, taking them out to this island, and this is the rooms they kept different people in, and then they sent them out this door on ships into slavery. And you go, if you ask our team tonight, most of them are not going to be like, that was the highlight of my, I was really like, that gave me warm, fuzzy feelings. You go, people are really horrible to each other. Right, and, and ancient Rome is not that much different in the scheme of things of where Paul is, is finding and, and yet, catch this, in the middle of this, the gospel is breaking into the Roman Empire, and Paul is addressing people who are under the yoke of slavery, under the yoke of being owned or being uh, in, in servitude to somebody else. And what's fascinating about this is that Paul does not give really harsh words towards the institution itself. And yet, what he does say here and in his other letters is that the gospel changes everything about this. This institution and every other human institution does not remain unchanged when the gospel comes in. So in other words, because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, it directly impacts every human relationship. It directly impacts every single piece of human culture. Like no, no stone is left unturned when the gospel breaks in. But what might be surprising to us is the first thing that Paul says is not necessarily, like, like I said, we would like for him to say, cast off the yoke and get rid of it. But instead he says, let all who are in this situation Regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Now, if you're remembering into chapter 5, there are two other groups that this is chasing right on the heels who Paul has said you should honor these groups within the church. The first one was to honor widows in verse 3. And then a good chunk of chapter 5 was how do you honor widows within the church? How do you take care of those who are in need within the church? And then last week, uh, Eric touched on verses 17 through 25. And the second group that receives honor or is to be honored within the church uh, by God's people are the elders who rule well. And they're to, be, uh, they're to be honored with double honor. But then you step into chapter 6 and you go from honor to double honor now to all honor. You know, that seems backwards, right? Especially from our understanding of, of what this would be. To honor somebody who has all of your rights and privileges in their hand, he says, give them, count them as worthy of all honor. And as Eric pointed out last week, 
The honor in chapter 5, in both cases, in, in widows and in elders, it carries this idea of physical provision for them, right? So for the widows, that they're to be provided for materially and physically from the church. like So that, so that those in the, in the first century who did not have families to take care of them, the church was to take care of them, right? That was one of the ideas of honoring them. In the same way in in verses 17 through 25, one of the ways that the church takes care of its leaders is it, is it provides for them materially and physically so that they're not uh, uh, like an, uh, an ox that is muzzled as it's working and treading out the grain. So then the idea of carrying this into chapter 6 then is regarding them as worthy of all honor is to seek the benefit and the, and the, the, the provision of their master. So the one who is their physical master, they ought to work diligently for him with all honor. And you notice, though, that the, the, the reason why in the second part of the verse is not because of the inherent goodness of their master. It is so that the name of God and his teaching will not be reviled. And again, the, the, the heart of that word is that the word that God's name and God's truth would not be, uh, maybe an easier way to think of reviled is that it would not be slandered or that God would not be blasphemed on behalf or because of the way that somebody works for or treats or honors their master. Now, if you're going, okay, that's still, I don't know how does this work for you and I. The near cousin for this is, you may not know anybody who's a bondservant. How many of you know has a job? And how many of you know somebody who has a job and they are not the boss? Okay, and for those of you that have a job and you're not the boss, is it always easy to give all honor to your employer? How many of you, I mean, just I, I, this is probably just me, um, because uh, how, how many of you at the end of the day have sat down somewhere in your house and just invented about your employer and your boss? And I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to like go too far out on the limb, but has it ever been possible that your attitude towards your boss has affected the manner in which you work for him or her? All of a sudden, we are at the heart of, I believe, what First Timothy 6 is really speaking to us in our day and our time. You may, not, you may not have somebody who owns you that has the title to your name, but you work for somebody. And the question is, the big question that I would have you leave this morning and wrestle with over and over again is, how does the way that I work impact how other people view God and his glorious gospel? Like if people were to view the way that I interact and the way that I esteem my boss, my manager, my supervisor, and they were to extrapolate from that and they say, oh, you are a follower of Jesus, so this is therefore what I think about your God and his truth. That hurts a little bit, doesn't it? There's more at, at, at stake in my work than just my paycheck and my retirement. For you, if you are in Christ, where you work probably gets the vast majority of the hours of your life. Where you work probably gets the 
full extent of your stress and your frustration and whatever other things that we have in the flesh. And the question is, what do other people see in us when we work? And how does that reflect what we believe about God and who he is? Now, it might be really tempting at this point to just go, you know what, I think I I am smelling what you're stepping in. Uh, So, I think I ought to just kind of keep my personal beliefs hidden so that the name of Jesus would be protected because, wow. You know, how many of you ever decided, like, maybe at some point in your life you had one of the fish on the back of your car? And then you cut somebody off and you're like, maybe I shouldn't have this fish on the back of my car anymore. Or maybe you've been cut off by somebody else and you're like, Oh, yeah, that, there's a heart issue that that fish is not, not ad- adequately reflecting the way that this person drives. Every, I mean, that's silly, but have you ever had that? You saw somebody's bumper sticker that was like, yay, Jesus is awesome, and they drive like a jerk? Does it, does it affect, could it affect your view, not just of that person as a horrible driver, but could it affect your view of the God that they serve. Pretty pretty quickly, right? Are your toes still out? We'll just take one more step. Have you ever, in the 21st century, been associated with anyone on social media and the things that they say on their, in their public life, and you, yet you know what their profession of Jesus is, and you go, oh, those don't seem to line up. Now, you probably give the benefit of the doubt because you go, hey, I'm a, I'm a fellow follower of Jesus, and I don't always say the things that I ought to say. But has it ever affected your view? If somebody says, I claim the name of Jesus, but yet this is what is shown in what comes out of me. Is there any realm of possibility that that would affect you or somebody else's perception of their God, or the truth that they claim. That hurts, doesn't it? Because I, I really just like, I, I want you to like, I, hey, I'm a broken vessel, so see all that is good in Jesus and then just throw away the rest. Unfortunately, and, and Eric, I think you touched on this last week, you, in the world today, you do not get that benefit of the doubt. And so we're back to this thing of Paul laying out why are these practical matters so important? Because... You and I, if we are in Christ, we are his ambassadors. Making God's appeal through us is what 2 Corinthians says. Imploring people to be right with the God who's created them. And at the same time that we are those ambassadors, is it possible that we're also kind of doing a side hustle with side messages that are detracting from that good mission that we have been given? And so there, we might be tempted to just to, to kind of split and see work life and church life as different. So so at work I am this is my work persona, and then at church this is my church persona. Um, and yet Paul is drawing this direct connection between our faith in Jesus and our everyday life in the middle of a watching world. So the solution isn't to hide our faith so that we would protect God's character. That might be our temptation. Like, well, I'm just not really good at this displaying the glory of Jesus, so I'll just kind of be quiet and let the people who are really good at following Jesus, they could be more vocal. 
I want you to see in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is talking about a, a time where he's, he's looking at and promising his disciples in, in Matthew chapter 10 that there is a time of persecution coming for them simply because they are followers of Jesus. And before we're, we're taking verses 32 and 33, but right before this, he, he tells them not to fear people who have no control over their eternal soul, but that only have the impact to, or the ability to impact their physical life. But he says, uh, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. That's, again, that's a hard word. And yet, get this, the, 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 the application of this is not hide your faith really well so Jesus' name is still intact when you get off work at the end of your shift. Right? Because in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus also says, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, first he says you're the, the salt of the earth, which in other words, like you're impacting, uh, you to, 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 to resonate and to impact and to flavor the world. But then he says you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In other words, if we put all this together with what Paul is saying, like your life, like part of the wisdom of God, and, and, and we can ask him later when we like face-to-face, we can go, oh, why did you choose to do it this way? Why did you choose to use people who make mistakes like us to radiate the awesomeness of who you are? Because we, we will never be perfect at it. So God, why? But part of this is, he says, you are like you are a shining light on a hill. You're a city on a hill. You're, you're set out there. Like he has intended, like he puts the gospel in you. He brings you to salvation and he, and he empowers you and he fills you so that your life will reflect and radiate not who you are, but who he is. So that, and you see the takeaway in this in verse 16, so that when others see it, they may see you, but give glory to your father. Now, that too is counter to what we would often do, right? Most of the time, I want to shine and reflect and radiate. Why? So that people will say, wow. You're not the pastor I thought you were. You're awesome. Like, we want people to walk away and go like, wow, that, that person has something. And yet Jesus is getting it, and Paul is getting it. It's not about you and I. It's not about our reputation for our own sake. Our lives are for his sake. Even in those places where we work and live and just do everyday life. For in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he's just talking about, he's talking about the everyday mundane working for your master. In Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 22, in, in, like I said, in most of Paul's letters, he hits on this dynamic of life or this relationship or this, this just everyday normal part of who we are. But starting in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 22, he, he shifts from, in verses 18 through 21, uh, the family relationships and how those families are, uh, how those relationships are to reflect who Jesus is. And he switches in verse 22 again to bond servants. 
He says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And notice this next one. This is maybe even harder than the first part. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, and notice again, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Master, and then he also shifts it to the other side. There's, there's a very real possibility there's masters within the church. He says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. But notice, like, that's hard. Like, isn't it? It's a lot easier to work and to work hard, maybe with the thought that somebody's seeing me and I'm doing it just by way of, like, as, as long as they're watching me, two thumbs up, work's going great. They turn around, it's like, that guy is a jerk. That's, that would never happen at work either, would it? Like, when boss or supervisor is there, work goes up and everybody's happy and everybody's cheerful, everything's good, no problems. As soon as he walks out the door, it returns back to normal. Paul says it's not like among you in Christ. It ought not to be that way because at the end of the day, and this is, this is a really important truth that he hits on here. At the end of the day, you're not just working for a person. You're not just working for that boss. You're not just working for that company. You're not just working for that supervisor. You're not just working for that manager. You are working for the Lord. Now, the good news is that how, how much more freedom does that give to work with some joy? Going At the end of the day, it's not about that person. But what I do while I'm there can be done, first of all, it, it can be redeemed. It's redeemed because it's done for the Lord. It's glorifying him. It is worshiping him in the normal things that he has given us to do. But then it is also holding up high the name of Jesus and letting the good news of who Jesus is reflect out of who we are. So Paul says, be careful, those who are under a yoke as bondservants, to regard their masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. And then he goes on to another dynamic. In verse 2, those who have believing masters, it says, must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So then he's taking an extra step and saying, well, what if you work for a Christian who is your boss? He says, don't take advantage of him just because you have the same faith in Christ. Don't give a, a smaller effort because, well, he's a Christian and he'll forgive me. He says, no, like, continue to give all honor because... You are brothers in Christ, or sisters in Christ, or brothers and sisters in Christ. Rather, they must serve all the better, or with all the more honor, since the ones who are benefiting, so since, since their bosses, the ones who are benefiting by their good service, are believers, and notice the second word, and beloved. Which raises a second question that I think is important for us to wrestle through. How do I view other followers of Jesus? Do I view them as beloved by God? Like, in my head, 
In your head, you might go, oh, yeah, I know. Like, I know that God loves them. That's why Jesus died on the cross, so that they would be brought into his family. And like, yeah, God loves them. But in our interactions together, is it evident that I believe or that you believe that the other person is beloved of God? Because the gospel changes everything. The good news of Jesus changes everything. I just want to really quickly turn in, into 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll, we'll, we'll um, read through here really quick and um, bring this out even a little bit more for us. Uh, because you and I may not be uh, bond servants in the classical sense. As nobody owns us. Uh, we live in America, the land of the free and the home of the brave. Nobody owns us. We are our own boss. We are our own person. Nobody else has any say over us. And yet 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Romans chapter 6, I think also hit at this dynamic carries over into our life in Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 20, again, we would love for Paul to just say, throw off a yoke of slavery, but he says, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. In other words, like if, there, if, if you have the ability to be free, be free. But he says, for he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant. So if you were a slave, when you were called in, when God brought salvation to them, and they were a slave, they belonged to somebody else. He says, if you are called in this way, that person is free in the Lord. He's a freedman of the Lord. He says, likewise, the one who is free, the one who might be a master in this life, when he was called, is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. So you see this, the, the, the way that the gospel turns this upside down. He says, if you were a slave before, in Christ you're free. If you were free before, you're actually like you, you belong to somebody. You belong to Jesus. In Romans chapter 6, we're not going to read all of Romans 6. Just write Romans 6 and you can go back and read it later. In Romans chapter 6, Paul uses this example of slavery that everybody in his time would have been familiar with. To say that apart from Jesus, before salvation comes, like if, if we are doing life in our own effort. God created us to know him and to walk with him, but we are doing our own thing instead, and we are going our own way, thinking we can craft our own kingdom, our own existence, our own stuff. Paul says, we are, apart from Jesus, we are in a condition of slavery to sin. We are enslaved to sin. Now, you, you carry the idea of slavery, and Paul says, like, he goes, this is it's kind of a broken example. He goes, but this is, this is for your benefit, so that you would see this. A slave has no right or privilege over themselves. They do only what is dictated to them, right? Paul says, apart from salvation in Christ, apart from a right relationship with God through faith in Christ, you and I, we are not just free and floating and and doing our own thing. We are actually spiritually enslaved to sin and to death. We might think that we have all of the freedom to do whatever we want, but at the end of the day, we are only giving into sin and death. That's, that's, that's who we are. But then Paul says in Romans chapter 6, when faith comes and when we enter in by faith into a right relationship with God, when we are covered by the salvation and the faith that comes in Christ, he says, you're no longer slaves to sin and death, but he, does, he doesn't say, but he says, he doesn't say, but you're 
No, now you are what? Slaves to righteousness. You're slaves of Christ. And you will, wait, I just traded slavery for slavery? Well, that doesn't sound great. And what Paul is laying out in Romans chapter 6, which is really important, is that there is no spiritually neutral territory for the human heart. You either belong to Jesus, or you belong to sin and death. There's no free agent period where you're in the middle where, well, I'm not enslaved to sin, but I really don't belong to Jesus. I'm just floating. Paul says, at one point you were slaves to sin and, and, and death. Now you are slaves to righteousness. But he also says that when the slave, the person who is enslaved to sin, is reaping the consequences or the fruit of what they are enslaved to. So if you're enslaved to sin, what you are reaping for yourself, what you're restoring up, is an eternal death that is separated from the God who made you to know him and to walk with him. But then he says that if you're enslaved to Christ, like if, you're, if your life is hidden in Christ and you are now his and you belong to him, part of that means that, that you still don't have, like your life is still not your own to do whatever you want with, right? Just in Colossians chapter 3, you were bought, or in 1 Corinthians 7, you were bought with a price. You belong to him. But you're reaping the fruit that comes with righteousness, which is everlasting life and righteousness. And then at the tail end of that chapter is the verse that we all know real well, Romans 6.23. Because the wages of sin, or the fruit of sin, is death, but the gift of God, the fruit of God, the fruit of life in him is what? Eternal life. So one of the mistakes that we can make this morning as we think about this, the, 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 the dynamic in 1 Timothy chapter 6 of bondservants, we go, oh, bondservants, that, that's all in the past. It doesn't apply to us anymore. This morning, in addition to asking the question, how does the way that I work impact how other people view God and his glorious gospel, a more important question is, is what am I yoked to? Like the picture that he says that all who are under a yoke, it's, it's, it's the, the, the thing you put on the oxen's neck and it plows. And Jesus uses that same imagery, doesn't he? He says, come to me all you who are what? Burdened and heavy laden. In other words, all of you whose yoke is heavy. Take my, but he, said, he doesn't just say take the yoke off. He says, take my yoke upon you. For my burden is easy in the way is light. Who or what? Is your life connected to? What are you chained to? Are you chained to life in Christ? Are you still chained to sin and death? There's no middle way. There's no alternative. And as we we enter into the week of Easter, we turn our attention to the, the table this morning, the Lord's Supper. We're reminded that the only that we could be that we could be chained to Jesus is through what he has done for us. He's the only one who breaks the yoke of slavery and gives a new one. And, and, and the important question that we should ask is, well, how has he done that? God did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves when he sent his eternal son Jesus to take on flesh and dwell among us. And Jesus lived the perfect life that you and I could not live. And then Jesus, 
went to death, even death on a cross, in order to take all of our sin, all of our shame, all of our guilt, all of our death on himself. So although he was perfect and without sin, he died for your sin and for mine. In the scandalous exchange, right? Taking off the yoke of slavery and putting on a yoke of freedom in Christ happened through what he has done for us. There's not, a, not any amount of, of, of tidying ourselves up. It's not a, any amount of good things that we might would do. It comes only through faith saying, he has done for me what I cannot do for myself. And then as often as we come and we eat at the Lord's table together, what we are proclaiming to each other over and over again, every time we do this is, this is how God makes sinful people right with him. He sent his son to be broken and crushed by our sins so that we might receive instead righteousness and eternal life. And, and, and when we eat and we drink together, there's nothing spectacular in the eating and the drinking by itself. But what we are proclaiming is a profound and scandalous mystery. That God has delighted to send his son into the world to save sinful people. And as Paul said, and we are the foremost of those. And when we come and we eat together, we're saying because of what he has done, not because of anything that we have done for ourselves, All we have done is simply trusted him and now committed to walk with him. To do what he says to do, to go where he says to go. So as we turn our attention, uh, as we have a moment to just contemplate, again, I ask the question, who or what are you chained to? There's no amount of bread or juice that you could eat that would break those chains but the one who it represents has done it already. And then if there's anything in us as we get ready to come and eat from the table together, if there's anything in us that we go, man, this is, I've been holding on to this. I've been sitting on this, and I know it's not right. Deal with it even now. Because it is for that that Jesus has died, has been buried, and has been risen to new life.